This message was recorded at Devoted, a Christ Central Festival for all the family. To find out more about Devoted, please visit devotedevent.org. Reading the Bible is not as easy as it sounds, is it? And I guess you're here in some measure because you've recognized that, you know, maybe you're a novice and it's like, oh my goodness, what have I done? It's like trying to learn how to drive in a, a Hummer on the M25 in rush hour. Um, and it, it, it is, it's, com- it's not straightforward. Um, and, I, and I just think, well, why, why should it be? Uh, sometimes in the Christian life, we want to make everything really, really simple and really easy to understand. But why? Some things are not. Some things are difficult. If, Lord forbid, I should ever want to join a knitting group, I would need to learn what knit one, pearl one means. I would just have to face the fact that I will need to learn some technical vocabulary in order to flourish in this particular pastime. To read the Bible well, I think, involves doing some similar things. It means engaging your mind And it's not always dead straightforward. And it's not always straightforward how the Bible speaks directly to me, uh, which is tricky, isn't it? So part of this life zone is to try and help you to think about how can I really engage with the Bible? How can I really think about it? Um, Today, we're going to be looking at some Old Testament texts. Excited? Um, Can I say as well, just personally, I'm heartened, not, not for the sake of ego, Uh, that this room has been pretty full yesterday and today, but that there are this many people among us in Christ Central Churches who would come to a weekend like this and go, yes, I want to go and give myself to 75 minutes of listening about reading the Bible. Well done. Well done. It's obviously in in our roots or, as it's sometimes said, in our DNA as a movement, but don't assume that. Please don't assume that. Don't think, well, it was there in the beginning. It will always be so. Uh, You've got to do the digging. And I'm encouraged that so many of you are saying, yeah, okay, I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to get to grips with Scripture. It's excellent. Really, really excellent. So well done. And other life zones are available. But I'm glad that you're at this one. Um, why don't we pray? I'd like to just pray briefly before we dive in this morning. And uh, otherwise, I'll just get carried away and start waffling. Father, we thank you for the gift of Scripture. And we thank you so much that in your great mercy, this eternal God who can't be discovered by human reason has chosen to reveal himself to us. Thank you that you reveal yourself in and through the things that you have made. You've spoken in your son, Jesus, the word incarnate, and you've spoken in the word written down, this witness to your living eternal word. And we ask Holy Spirit that you would catch us up in the joy of the word of God today, that you'd catch us up in the joy of digging deep and thinking deep. Teach us to think your thoughts after you. Teach us to hunger and thirst after you. Teach us that you are working powerfully through this sword of the spirit. Uh, And may we find both you speaking to us this morning, but also you equipping us and drawing us into your own joy in who you are, your delight in who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May we be drawn into wonderful rejoicing in you through your word today, we ask. Amen. Amen. All right, let's get to it. I'm going to get you reading again this morning. This is going to be one where you've got to work. Um, And that's good, but we're not going to read just yet, all right? I'm not going to give away exactly what we're doing yet, but I'm going to give you a clue. We're going to be talking about a psalm this morning. The psalm's the biggest book of the Bible, huge. Personally, I use the psalms regularly to pray. I just literally pray them through. I don't improvise. I just pray them because they're 150 prayers that God gave the people of God to speak out in worship and praise of him. So, so I use them, and the, the Psalms have been used by the church and by Jews for centuries. And so it's very, very important that we, uh, that we engage well with the Psalms. But the Psalms is a complicated collection. Uh, if we applied our categories of history and literature and theology to the Psalms, we would find all manner of variation in the Psalms. You will find repetition. So, for example, why are Psalms 14 and 53 very, very similar, almost identical, in fact, except that one talks about God and the other one talks about the Lord. 
What's the significance of that? Have you noticed that there are five books of the Psalms? Have you clocked that before? Okay. They're divided into five books. Um, I haven't... Oh, where's my pen? Here's my 25 pens down here. Oh, it's on the train. Oh, gosh. It's classic. So the, the Psalms are divided into five books. Now... What I want to ask you is, where else in Scripture will you find a collection of five books? Do you know? Oh, the Torah Tuch. <laughs> yes, the Pentateuch. Okay, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The five books of the Psalms don't just neatly map onto the Torah, so each one represents another one. But there's something going on in this division of five books that somehow reflects the Torah. And the first psalm, Psalm 1, gives us the clue to that. Psalm 1 actually is not technically, it's not really a psalm. It's not like any of the other psalms in some ways. It's an introduction to the whole rest of the Psalter. It's what you might call a hermeneutical key. It sets up for you what is supposed to happen with the rest of this collection of books. And in Psalm 1, we read the words, uh, blessed is the man or blessed is the person uh, who meditates on the law of God day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, etc., etc. It yields its fruit in season. Talking about meditation on Torah, meditation on God's law. Law is not an amazing translation of Torah, because we have an idea about laws. We think about legalities and maybe dry, dusty volumes, leather-bound books somewhere. Um, and it sounds a bit, ugh, maybe we think legislation. But the word Torah means something more like instruction. It's not just a bunch of rules. It's a way of life. It's instruction for you. And the first psalm sets out and says, hey... If you meditate on Torah day and night, this is the kind of person that you are going to become. Right? It invites you in. But here's the beautiful thing. Over these five books of the Psalms, the idea is that you are meditating on Torah by meditating on and praying through and reading through these five books of the Psalms. Right? The psalmist or the editor, whoever compiled the collection that we call the psalms, thinks that as you read the psalms, you are hearing the voice of God's people reflecting God's Torah back to God. And you are joining in the praises and the thanksgiving of God's people as they answer God. Now, there's a brilliant book. Jeremy won't recommend it from the front, probably, so I'll recommend it here. Uh, Answering God by Eugene Peterson. It's a little book on the Psalms, and it's just dynamite. Um, I seriously recommend you uh, Amazon it or whatever else you do to find books. Um, badger your local Christian bookshop. Um, but it's amazing, Answering God. Eugene Peterson has this idea that we, as we engage with the Psalms, we're joining in Answering God. Torah, God has spoken. The Psalms in their five books are reply. They are answering him. God's word is first. Always. Always. But we answer God. And as we engage in the Psalms, we engage in the people of God's answer to him. Now, this is profound because it means that we're not straggling around looking for things to say or things to pray. God has spoken his people have answered, and we join in their answer. And as we join in their answer to God, we find that we are speaking Torah out back to God in worship and prayer as well. So when you're lost for words, the Psalms are phenomenal because they give you words. In fact, they give you some things that most Christians, if they uttered them in a prayer meeting, would be in danger of being cast out of their churches. Right? They give you words that you would never dream of saying to God. We might touch on why later on, depending on how things go. You get to bring your voice to the psalm too. So as you bring your hopes, dreams, longings, frustrations, anger, disappointments, rejection from family, friends, your issues with society, with church, with leaders, everything. You get to, and, and your thanks and your reflections and your peace and your, the wonder. You bring all of that. And you get to add your voice 
to this voice of the Psalms and address God. But the Psalms school your language. Okay? The Psalms are there to school your language in prayer, to school you as someone who knows how to answer God. Now, yesterday, we spoke about Christ as the key to Scripture a bit. So the challenge is, how do we take these 150 psalms, this collection of psalms, this collection of songs and prayers, how do we take really difficult verses and understand them as being about Jesus without it being just very shallow and very simple and maybe not very rich? How do we find a really deep, satisfying sense of finding Jesus in the psalms? I'll give us some suggestions as we go along. So there we got, this is my introduction to the Psalms. So the collection of Psalms, an answer to God, a reflection on Torah, a means of meditating on Torah, uh, a means that we get to bring our voice to the scriptures and, and add it to the scriptures, but find that shaping our response as well. And Psalm 1 as our introduction to the whole collection of the Psalter, which is wonderful. Now, a couple of scholars who have written on the Psalms uh, in more recent times, uh, i.e. in the last sort of 20 or 30 years or so, uh, one called Walter Brueggemann, who, if you've never read any Walter Brueggemann, I would thoroughly recommend that you read some Walter Brueggemann at least once. You'll never be the same again. Uh, Walter Brueggemann looks like how I imagine the Apostle Paul to look in my head, kind of crooked nose, balding, puffs of hair at the side, a beard, piercing eyes. Um, Just that's how Paul is in my head, you know? I don't know how he looks to you. Um, But Brueggemann is phenomenal, and he's a very, very sharp expositor and interpreter of Scripture. And he's written quite extensively on the... Well, he's written ridiculously extensively on the Old Testament, but particularly on the Psalms. And Walter Brueggemann noticed that when you read the Psalms, there is a... Um, I don't really know why. I didn't need to write five books on there particularly. It's that I've got a whiteboard. <laughs> so I'm going to use it. And whether you like it or not. Um, so there are Psalms that are... He, calls the, he talks the three types of Psalms in Brueggemann's thoughts. There are Psalms of what he calls orientation. Okay? Now that is Psalms where all is good with the world. Blessed be your name. Um, everything's lovely. The psalmist is happy. Um, you know, everything seems to be going well. And he says these are psalms of orientation. They reflect on the goodness of God. Uh, there's an order to creation. God has placed his people in their land. God is in the temple. Hallelujah. Oh, fantastic. You know, like this morning or something. You know, it's just it's nice, isn't it? It's orientation. It's fantastic. But then he goes, aha, but there are also psalms of uh, 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 disorientation. And those are the psalms where, in the vernacular, the psalmist is going, what the heck? Or something like that. Disorientation. Those are the psalms where the psalmist complains. As a pastor, I don't like complaining. But God apparently doesn't mind it so much when it's addressed to him in prayer, as a reflection on his ways in the world. Not just randomly, but when it's part of the life of faith. So there's these psalms of disorientation. One of them would be Psalm 44. And in Psalm 44, we, uh, in fact, Paul cites Psalm 44 in Romans 8. It's instructive to look at the context of Psalm 44 to understand what Paul might be doing with Romans 8 as well, by the way. In Psalm 44, the psalmist reflects on God's faithfulness, his covenant, the king, the wonders of, of relationship with God. It's all good. But then he says, but you don't go out with our armies and we're getting our heads kicked in. That's the message version. And then, this is phenomenal, the psalmist says, but we haven't been unfaithful to your covenant. And it's a profound cry of the heart. How many times in your life have you hit the buffers on something and there's absolutely no good reason for it at all? You haven't been sinning drastically. Everything is good Everything is well. Your kids are behaving themselves for once. Like church is fun. I feel fulfilled. And then, bam, out of nowhere, bosh, 
something happens. I, we haven't been unfaithful to you, God. What's going on? Psalms of disorientation are built for you in those moments because they express to God the pain, the, the kind of topsy-turviness of what, what is all this about? Okay? There's lots of psalms of disorientation. And then there are psalms, and this is great, there are psalms of reorientation. So those are the ones where it begins good, gets bad, and then it all, by the end, gets put back together again. Um, and these three things really reflect part of the life of God's people with God. The life of God's people seeking to live a life under God's instruction, under God's Torah. The trials and the joys and the successes and the failures, the rest and the peace and the battles and the enemies and all the rest of it. Okay? Orientation, psalms of orientation, psalms of disorientation, psalms of reorientation. So yay, Walter Brueggemann, very, very good. But then along comes a guy called John Goldingay, another, uh, actually he's a British, he's, he's a Brummie. He's an Old Testament scholar from Birmingham, <laughs> if you can imagine such a wonderful thing. <laughs> it's like that Birmingham accident, uh, um, accident, accent. <laughs> that Bur that droll Birmingham accent talking about the Old Testament. <laughs> it's just wonderful. Um, I, he's, I shouldn't be mean to John Goldingay. He's a great scholar. Goldingay says, yes, Walter, you're right. There are signs of orientation, disorientation, reorientation. But John Goldingay goes, do you know what? There's actually very often in one single psalm all three of those things together. And more often than not, there are elements of those in every single psalm. And uh, as sometimes happens in scholarly arguments between different Bible scholars, uh, Walter Brueggemann went, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Which is amazing. It doesn't always happen that way, by the way. There's normally kind of claim and counterclaim and you know, rocks thrown across the Atlantic. Um, but Brueggemann said, yes, 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 you're right. That's, that's very good. Some psalms do contain... All three of these elements, psalms of orientation, uh, they, they come together, orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. So we're going to look at one such psalm in some detail. Now, if you, if you weren't here yesterday, I'm going to ask you to, in, in little groups, uh, you, you can pick the number of how many people, I'm not fussy. Um, I want you to just read this psalm and pick out the details. Right? In other words, I don't want you to interpret yet. We're going to do what's the first step of exegesis, which is just describing, analyzing what's actually there. Right? What does it actually say? Right? Don't put your spin on it. Just describe what's there. Right? Notice any historical elements. Notice any literary elements. Is there anything about the structure? Notice anything about theology? How does, where does God pop up? Notice the language. Just pull out the details and then we're going to whack it all on the board, and then we'll start to make some comments about interpreting those details and try and understand what it all might mean. Okay? It's Psalm 23. I've waited, oh, I've waited until that point to tell you. Before you start, David Kleins, a, an Old Testament scholar, says that Psalm 23 is the best loved and the worst translated psalm in the whole of the Psalter. Right? Have fun. Okay? Five or ten minutes, read, discuss, I'll wander around and you can pick my brains if you want, okay? Just while you're, while you're reading, just let me, a couple of things. Uh, if, you, if you've got different translations, compare. Right? Really important. If your Bible has got footnotes, read them. Right? And, and think about the difference it makes. All right. Um, just, are you, is that enough? Or are you still going? I mean, I know how this goes sometimes. You know, it just it ends up in a hubbub of general conversation. Um, this was an exercise to make you think specifically about what's actually there. Because... 
you know, we all have strategies when we read, and we read for different reasons. And most of us, probably as Christians, read the Bible devotionally. Um, and sometimes that means that we're looking for something to, to speak to me. Sometimes it, it means that we think that the Bible is actually a book all about us, which would be a mistake. It's a book all about God. Um, and so you know, we, when we do this exercise of looking carefully at what's there, it enables us to maybe come in at a different angle and think carefully about what we're seeing. So, as we did yesterday, we're going to have hands up, please. And, I will, and we're going to call. Tell me what you found. Tell me the details. Oh, oh okay, we're quick. Right, yes, lady with the shrub top of the glasses. Uh, top of the class, thank you. All right, we are going to come back to that very much. Yes. I like you. <laughs> I like the rest of you, too. <laughs> you not. not. <laughs> okay, I'm going to call that framed by, all right, framed by. I'm going to call that framed by the Lord. Oh, sorry, you didn't hear what she said. Oh, I'm very sorry. Uh, it was, uh, the gentleman down here said it begins and ends with the Lord. Okay. That is very important. My. Did that just take about 95% of you's best one? <laughs> okay. Yep. Hello. Ah, excellent. All right. Did you hear that? No. Uh, <laughs> halfway through, the language changes, and the psalmist, whether it's David or whoever the psalmist is, says, you. Moves from talking about he to you. Okay? It's the, the point where he addresses God. Okay? So, you. Okay? Very, very good. Other few. Hello, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So, uh, geography uh, and picnics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hi. Have you studied the Psalms before? <laughs> no? Anyone there? Come on, be honest. There's a little bit of a sneaky, we've done some research on this before, going, okay. Shepherd and host, that's very, very good. That's, that is joint first in the class, well done. <laughs> Shepherd and host. Uh, other things. Oh, hello. Yes. Yeah. It appears to be where we came from being he to you. Is just after dividing death or dividing darkness. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, where the address takes place, I guess. Um, place of address. Oh, okay. Go on, expand. Um, what have you got there? Uh, NIV, you know, King James, all those ones say we make the Yeah. He lets. Oh, okay. Right. Hmm. Do you see? Right, that's really big, isn't it? Like, is, is God the active agent, or, or am I the one who decides I need to rest now? And God goes, okay. Um, I'm, just, I'm going to call that agency. Yeah, don't worry if you can't remember that. It's agency. Yeah, okay. Great. Very good observation. Green church. Yes, hello. Okay. Present tense. Yeah, all right. Present. Uh, present tense. Blue t shirts. Hello. Sorry, say again? Yeah. 
Oh, okay, yeah, all right. Um, that's sort of related to agency-ish, okay. Um, I walk through... Yeah, nice. Yep. Now, okay, that's interesting. Lack nothing. You're reading the NIV, aren't you? Okay. All you others who are reading something other than the NIV, it doesn't say, I lack nothing, does it? Okay. What did you have? So we had, I lack nothing. What did the NLT say? I have all I need. I shall not want. They're all really different, aren't they? Do you think it's challenging to read that personally? I have everything I need. Have you ever paused us to question, is that true? Do I really? I, oh, just saying. Okay. We'll come on to these questions. I'm doing what I told you not to do. That's naughty. Okay, I lack, I lack nothing. My cup overflows. Yeah, okay. I lack nout. I'll put it in the Yorkshire vocabulary. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Cup overflows. That's a good observation. Uh huh. Um, I, well, I just I said I'll come back to you next. Yeah. The first part is talking about, and the second part is talking to. Okay. Yep. Yeah, to God. God. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, place of uh, about or to God. All right. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yes. So in my copy it says that um, he refreshes my soul, whereas the version you've got here says that it restores my soul. Okay, refreshes or restores, yeah, okay. Uh, refresh, restore. Hey. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Not particularly comfortable to be prodded, is it? Rod and staff. Jess, yeah. Oh, wait, are you interpreting? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> it's an observation first. Yeah, okay. Okay, yeah. So that, that's, that's helpful. That adds to the question of voluntary or uh, the agency question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Hey, yes. Okay, yeah. Uh, what can we call that in one simple word? Uh, confidence? Faith? No, um, Facts, a factuality, perhaps. Let's go for that. Okay. Hi, yeah. Found. Okay. I'll put shelter. Okay. Is that okay? That's that's important because that goes along with where are we? That goes along with host. Okay. Shelter and host. That's the uh, boy. If you can decipher this, you are doing well. Um, it's just getting it all out though. Hi. Yes. Just yes. You. Okay, yeah, it's a personal pronoun. It's potentially why Westerners like it so much. <laughs> Have you got your hand up? Oh, sorry? 
verse 0 of David, okay? Um, if you read the Psalms publicly, um, don't miss out the introduction bit. And that's part of the psalm in the Psalms. So when you get one that says of David, or you get one of those ones that says, according to the Megadith, to the tune of the Doe of the Morning, for the choir master, according to Azalel or something, you have to say all that bit too if you're going to read the whole scripture. Okay? That actually belongs to the scriptures. Um, I'll, I'm going to start preaching and interpreting. I'm not. Thank you, Bill. That's helpful. <laughs> Hi, yeah. Yeah, yeah, huh? Yes, yes, yes. I shall lack nothing. Is that or I? I shall not want. Yeah. Okay. We're going to come back to that verse because it's it's a it's an interesting one. Hey, Pete. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry. No, it's not Pete. I think it was Mark. Hello, mate. So you look like Pete Marfleet from Harrogate. Isn't it? Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to put Jewish reading. Okay. Oh, you said context. Yeah, yeah, very good. Thanks. That's that's the one I'm looking for. <laughs> Jewish context. Anyone else? Hi, Yalni Ender. Um, in verse 5 about you know, the abundance of it all. Yeah. Um, I love my footnote here. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you make my head fat with oil. Ah, <laughs> you make my head fat with oil. Yeah. Big head. Right, I'm just going to write a big head. What verse was that? Verse 5. Right, okay. We'll, we'll moor it in a verse because otherwise it's a bit weird. Higher, yes. Yes. So who is the psalm really about? Yeah. Eh? Um, Oh, there's murmurs. Is there, is there a different? Is there a different translation? Oh, okay, right. So again, right. Here's this is brilliant because this highlights for you that no translation is just a translation. It's always, always an interpretation, and it's always an interpretation from a theological perspective. Okay, because he, what, so tell me again that one, for his bringing honor to his name, okay, or for his name's sake could have very different directions in terms of agency and who acts and does what, okay? So you make a decision about how you translate based on prior theological understandings. Every Bible translation does it. The ESV Bible is, is renowned in scholarly circles for making very deliberate translation choices based on theology of men and women and their roles. Just to give you an idea, you will not find people championing the ESV Bible in egalitarian circles because it makes decisions based on prior theological understanding about how you interpret or how you translate certain verses. I'm not going to open that can of worms out. But it's just, look, this is about reading the Bible well. This is a part of reading the Bible well. It's thinking about the kind of decisions that go into how you get to your translations and the decisions that are made in producing translations and things. Um, okay, right, other things. Did I actually put that down? His, his nam. <laughs> his name, yeah. Name's sake, okay. At the back there, hello. Yeah, kind of I like that. Yeah. Uh, almost like orientation, disorientation, reorientation. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, life. Death. New life. I'm going to put it like that. That's, that's an interpretive decision. Right, okay. Higher, yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to put imagery. Is that okay? Hey. Okay. Uh, possibly, yeah. I don't know. Feeding, that sounds... Feeding, yep. We're going to find out soon how this is all very interesting when you, from David Klein's perspective on this psalm, okay? Yes, hiya. Yeah. Yeah. The name. Yeah. Okay. Oh, personal. Okay. I think God's identity. Okay. Let's let's put that. <laughs> right. God's identity. Okay. That's great. Okay. I, we'll, we'll stop there because we've got loads, and I've run out of space on that side for the time being. I could probably squeeze some things in. Well done. That's fantastic. Again, this is engaging in the first steps of exegesis. It's teasing out the details of the story, or the details of the psalm, rather, in this case. Let's start to comment on some of these things now. Okay? David Klein says it's the best loved and worst translated chapter, or one of the worst translated chapters in the Bible, which is challenging. Let's pick up a few things here. Somebody just mentioned a moment ago the green it was you, wasn't it? Green, green pastures. In the Hebrew text, there's no word for green. You realize? Isn't that interesting? Now, my mate Phil here wants desperately for this psalm to be reflected in the feeling of the 5,000, where Jesus makes them sit down on the green grass, which, if there was a word for green in the Hebrew, would be a brilliant and obvious connection and illusion, but there's no word for green in the Hebrew text, which is really interesting. And a little interlude... Can you all see that? Do you want me to read it out? T. Weber, little girl in the three to fours from Stafford. Please, could you collect her if parents or carers are here? And a little girl, S. Farrell, in the five to sevens seven from Cockermouth. Please, could you collect as well? Okay. Thank you. Okay. So no word for green, which is really interesting, isn't it? All right. Somehow it's crept in, the idea of pastures. Um, think, too, about sheep. We haven't talked about sheep, have we? Really? Um, sheep eat standing up. They don't eat sitting down. Now, I read that and I thought, really? And I was on the train going up and down to Durham two or three times a week and there's loads of sheep in the field. So I watched. I was probably the only person on the train, the, the 7.30 from York to Durham, actually looking at sheep in the field. I was like, can I see any of them? Even? And it's true. None of the sitting down sheep are eating. They eat standing up. They sit down to chew the cud, right? So this is a psalm about feeding. Mm, this is maybe a psalm about having fed, God giving space to actually chew over and enjoy the nourishment of what you have been fed, potentially, okay? Sheep don't eat sitting down. Have you ever reflected on the strangeness of this psalm, the, the almost cruel nature of the psalm in some translations, that he leads you beside still waters? Because if this is about feeding and nourishment, there I am, I'm a, sl- I'm a desperately thirsty sheep trotting along behind the shepherd or in front of the shepherd, and he won't let me stop. He's leading me beside still waters. What the- I'm thirsty! Um, but we carry on going, donkey plodding, donkey plodding. Uh, the Hebrew text says something more akin to, he leads me down to still waters. 
Now that's interesting, isn't it? All right. So the sheep imagery, more about nourishment, chewing, reflection, rather than feeding. Okay. Now, yes, feeding does come into it, as we'll see in a little while. But the shepherd imagery and the sheep imagery is when you start to pick into the details of the Hebrew text, you discover, ah, okay, there's some things that creep into this text that color our interpret color, <laughs> green pastures, um, that color our interpretation of it. Now, somebody mentioned earlier, the, uh, which was a brilliant point, about that the psalm is bookended by the Lord. Let's reflect on this for a moment. Who, who is the Lord? Yahweh. Yeah, Jesus. Yes, well, well done. Yes, of course. <laughs> but, but in the psalm, um, uh, in the, in, the, this is really interesting because in English language, Lord can mean sir or master. In fact, in Greek, kurios can mean master. Um, but here it's a name. It's not a title. And that's fascinating. Why, I do not know. I think it's maybe, does anyone have the NRSV Bible here? Does that start with Yahweh? No, okay. Or, uh, which one is it? Or maybe, it's a, does anyone have the Jerusalem Bible? Not likely. I think that the, the Jerusalem Bible starts with Yahweh is my shepherd and ends talking about the house of Yahweh. It's really, really key to note that. Because it then brings into the equation the whole notion of whether this is a super personal thing and who is, who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord? You see, Yahweh is the name of the covenant God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses and the Exodus, the God of Sinai, the God of the prophets and the land and the promises and the hope and everything, right? He's the covenant God. Yahweh is my shepherd. Now, you could ask the question, where does the emphasis lie there? Is it Yahweh is my shepherd, or is it Yahweh is my, my shepherd? I said that particularly. How could you tell the difference? How could you tell where the emphasis lies? Well, here's where the, the little phrase, I shall not want, I have everything I need, I lack nothing, is very, very important. I think that the best way of, of translating that verse is probably what the ESV has here. Okay? Not always right, but in this... Oh, no, hang on. No, it's not. Uh, uh, the NIV. Someone read me verse 1 in the NIV, please. I lack nothing. Okay. I lack nothing is closer to the Hebrew text. Now, I want you to have a quick look at another text quickly. And this will hopefully enlighten your understanding of Psalm 23. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 7. Deuteronomy 2, verse 7. All right, I'm going to read it out. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness... These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. Oh. So is it possible then that the psalmist, rather than saying, oh, I've got everything I need, isn't this lovely? Is it possible that the psalmist has bookended the whole of this psalm with a reference to Yahweh, the covenant God, and says, I lack nothing, because he knows that to be part of the covenant people means that you are carried by the covenant God through the wilderness, who will meet the need of all of his people faithfully and continually, because that's who he is. Right? The I lack nothing is not a statement about my own personal feeling of need moment to moment. It's a statement of confidence in the covenant God, who is my God, because I belong to his people. The psalmist understands I'm part of the people of God. Therefore, because he is the Lord who shepherds his people in the wilderness, he's my shepherd too. Okay? So the psalm moves from the, the, the expressly corporate and appropriates the corporate truth about who God is and makes it apply to the individual. 
it doesn't start with the individual and work its way out to the corporate responsibility. Now, that is probably a little bit of a kick up the bum and an encouragement to all of us who all begin reading for me and then gradually work through to others. Psalm 23, this most intense of personal psalms, is framed by a reference to the covenant God of a people. And the psalmist places himself within that view of the world and of reality. I belong to Yahweh's people, therefore I lack nothing. Because he's the one who led a people through the wilderness for 40 years who lacks nothing. Can you see? Finding your identity within the people of this God is more important than dealing with your personal identity thing first. It's just worth noting. There's a, there's, a, there's a shift and a drift in our language about identity that's me and my personal identity. Even the language of sonship is beautifully true, but you are a son in the son. You are adopted as a child of God in the son. It's not like there are billions of individually adopted and picked people. There is the son, and you're in the son, therefore you are a son. Because you're identified with him. And I think the psalm does that, doesn't it? He's my shepherd because I'm part of his people. And he shepherds his people. And that's great strength for you. So, okay, a very personal, very intense psalm seems to have this corporate sense about it as well, which is fascinating. Now, it was noted as well, and I think it was very, very valid, that all these personal pronouns, uh, me, I, my, and how much we as Westerners love it, and suddenly, right in the middle of the psalm, bam, you are with me. And it's amazing, because it's, it's structurally the, the right smack bang center of the psalm. Okay? Right in the very middle. If you look at it in your Bible, the way it's even laid out is right there in the middle. You are with me. And it's the first point in the psalm where the psalmist addresses God. He's reflected on God. He's reflected on you know, the, the, the shepherd and all the rest of it. And then suddenly, you. He suddenly addresses God right in the middle. And it's wonderful because we can all reflect on the reality of God's presence with us in our lives. But then think about the contingencies that surround the you are with me. There are still waters and some color of pasture. <laughs> there are dark valleys. There are picnic tables spread in the wilderness. And there's the presence of enemies. Right? That doesn't sound very peaceful to me. A picnic in the presence of my enemies. That doesn't sound, oh, that's, that's wonderful. That sounds a bit like, oh my gosh, what? I, I, the way that I have looked at this psalm, and I think it's helpful, is to see the whole thing as for your life. And I think the psalmist does that. His life is framed by God. It's framed by the covenant God. And in the middle of it, you are with me, but surrounding that is all kinds of crazy. There's the good, the bad, and the very, very ugly. It's all unfolding in the life of the psalmist. And yet right in the middle of it, he can say, you are with me. And somebody pointed out that it's the place where, it's, uh, even though I walk through the, the darkest valley, uh, do you know, it's not really speaking about death. It's not speaking about dying. This is a psalm that gets read out in funerals because it's assumed it's about life after death. It's not. I'll tell you why more specifically in a moment, but it's, it's really not. Even though I walk through the valley, of the, the darkest valley or the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You know, this speaks about presence in the place where it looks the most like absence. Aren't we so... Like, I don't know, kind of conditions to think about God's presence only in the moments that seem beautiful and warm and sunny. But the psalmist doesn't let you do that. The moments that most look like absence may actually turn out to be the moments where he is most present. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is Jesus in his glory. We want to escape as quickly as possible the moments of dark valleys. 
We want to get through the dark valleys into the picnic <laughs> or into heaven <laughs> um, or back to the still waters. But the psalm won't let us escape it. It insists upon the reality of God's presence in the dark and in the light with the enemies present and when you're lying down by still waters. All right? In all the contingencies of life, God is wonderfully present. And the psalm reflects on that. Now, let's think about orientation, reorientation, dis, uh, reorientation, disorientation, and reorientation again. We begin with the scene of orientation, perhaps. That's another way of looking at the psalm. Yahweh is my shepherd. I have everything I need. I lack nothing. I shall not want. However we take that. He makes me lie. He leads me down to the still waters. He makes me lie in pastures. That's orientation. That's, oh, this is wonderful. And then you get this disorientation, the dark valleys, the presence of enemies. It's disorientation. Oh, it's that kind of discordant of life where eek, it's gone a bit off kilter. But then there's the reorientation about coming to dwell in the house of the Lord. Okay. There is a cyclical, and that's, that's the reorientation bit. Right? So God has gone from the shepherd to the host. He shepherds you, and then there's this bleakness, and then there's a reorientation, and he hosts you. Again, remember, we're not the hosts. <laughs> Here, God is the host, very much so. And I think that this psalm just goes, whoop, 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 round and round and round. And I think that's how we're supposed to read it. Because our lives go round and round and round from orientation through disorientation to reorientation, back to that place of peace into disorientation again, and then reorientation. There's a cyclical nature to our lives, isn't there? Is it only me that feels like that? Or is everyone going, isn't that the truth? The Hebrew says something like this, and this is the, the footnote gets it bang on in the ESV. The Hebrew talks about not returning, dwelling, where it says at the last verse, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That sounds like I go to heaven and it's all finally pucker. Hooray. But the Hebrew says that I shall return to the Lord's house for length of days. It means that the psalmist will continue to be brought back by the faithful shepherd to be hosted in the Lord's house for, and for length of days. So in other words, the psalmist envisages the temple. God's dwelling place. This is where I get to meet and reflect on oh my God. He hosts me in his presence. And again and again and again, he brings me back and he brings me back and he brings me back. Even though there are enemies and even though there are dark valleys, he's faithful. He's a shepherd. He's with me. And because he's faithful, I will dwell in his house for length of days. And that's the way that our lives work. He continually brings us back, and he continually brings us back, and he continually brings us back. And in fact, the great theologians of the centuries, Augustine and Anselm and Aquinas, would say, yes, even creation is like that. All things have come from God and are returning to God. I should have gone that way, to that way, for your sake. But there's a return, and it's, that's how our lives are patterned like that, coming from God. Creation, orientation, beauty, truth, brokenness, distress, disorientation, being put back together, heading to resurrection, new creation. And so there should be no surprise that in our day-to-day -day lives, in our year-by-year, decade-by-decade lives, they follow that same kind of pattern of peace and prosperity, followed by seasons of eek, followed by, oh, thank you, you bring me back again. And round and round our lives go with Yahweh shepherding and hosting, being gracious to us, nourishing us, making sure that even in the wilderness, hey, we lack nothing because he's faithful shepherd and he will host us again. So we've looked at a very familiar psalm and we have tried to make it unfamiliar. Well, that's what I've tried to do. It's very cruel, isn't it? Take your favorite psalm and then make it really unfamiliar. But it's really important because it, I think it's true, familiarity breeds contempt. And if you know what it says already, well, you don't think about what it says anymore. And when you really start to think and you look at structure and you think about theology, it gets really, really important and really deep. Now, 
How do we understand this is about being Jesus in <laughs> 10 minutes? There are all kinds of ways of thinking about this. Of course, we can think about the Lord. And somebody said Jesus, and I'm jokingly shot it down. But it's, it's, that's one way of thinking about it. For us, well, Paul can talk about the Father, the one Lord, and, and Jesus. And he includes Jesus within the identity of the one God. And that's what all the New Testament authors do, by the way. They all include Jesus within the identity of the one God of Israel. They don't do the kind of substance, essence stuff of later Hellenistic philosophy and theology. They talk about identity. It's what makes God unique in Hebrew thought. And so the Lord in this psalm, we can understand as being the Lord Jesus, who from the Gospels we understand as the shepherd king via Ezekiel. And the God who will himself shepherd his people. And so we can understand this as Christians, as descriptive of the life of faith. This describes not just a Jewish, oh, that's the Old Testament. It's funny how lots of us like Psalm 23 in the Old Testament and are happy to own the Old Testament then, but not so happy to own the Old Testament in some other places. This speaks of the Lord Jesus, who shepherds us and hosts us and brings us to his dwelling again and again and again. But here's another hint, too. If the scriptures witness to Jesus, then that must mean that there is something about the voice of the psalmist itself that witnesses to Jesus. And I wonder whether in our reading of the psalms, we could be attuned to hearing Jesus in his faithful answering God, his answer to the Father's will, his answering God's voice, the Father's voice. Perhaps we find echoes in here of Jesus, not just in a, well, that equals that, but we actually understand maybe how Jesus addressed the Father. As Jesus is the the word of God who speaks the Father, and if he is the center of all scripture, then perhaps the voice of the psalmist we can understand somehow as being, reflecting the voice of Jesus which is a beautiful thing. Don't forget, Jesus knew these texts and prayed them and recited them. And, you know, who knows? Maybe he had them memorized. I don't know. So we get to see Jesus as the shepherd king. We get to understand our lives in that context, the life of faith with Jesus. And we get to understand perhaps how this, how the voice of the psalmist and the voice of the psalms is perhaps reflective somehow echoes of Jesus' own voice, teaching us a faithful address and response to the Father. There are riches here. There are riches in the Psalms. The best thing that you can do is go away and use them. Pray them. Immerse yourself in them. Let them discipline and disciple your language. Um, There are difficult ones. I was going to talk a little bit about Psalm 137, which ends with, blessed is the one who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. That's Christian scripture. Ah, Now you're not laughing. (laughs) It's Christian scripture, isn't it? Or are we making decisions about what is part of the Bible and what isn't anymore? So what do you do with that? Well, you have to think very carefully and you have to go and read Walter Brueggemann. Because I'm not going to tell you the answers. (laughs) Actually, I'll tell you a little bit of an answer. The very, very difficult, ouchy bits like that, you have to look at what actually is what happens. It doesn't actually affirm any action. It's not saying you should go and do this, but it speaks something out. Walter Brueggemann says there are things sometimes in us that are so dark, like that, that we have to speak them out. Because if we don't speak them out, they become reality. We end up doing them. And perhaps one of the reasons why we're sometimes a bit stultified in our faith is that we don't speak out the stuff. And then it becomes stuff. And when we speak it out, Brueggemann says it almost brings it to death. You speak it out and and it's gone. You speak out this, oh, God, I don't know. And, and who else do you go to with that? You know, do you turn up to your small group and go, oh, blessed is he who gets to the little ones. And the... Well, no, but you give it to God and you, you bring it to him. Or you, may, you can, I think, legitimately make it about spiritual enemies. And you can make it a prayer for God to finally, utterly defeat the powers that rail against his good creation and his purposes. 
You can make it a prayer that, that asks God in no uncertain terms to deal with injustice and violence in the world. There are ways of approaching it. You must also think about it through the lens of the cross, where God didn't dash our little ones against the rock, but he dashed his own little one. So here are some things to think about. It was mainly about Psalm 23, but you know, there are difficult bits in the Psalms too. But go and read them and use them. Uh, if you want more recommendations of books, come and tap me up and I'm happy to point you in the direction of popular through to more academic stuff. Tomorrow, we're going to be in the book of Deuteronomy. So if you were feeling brave coming today, tomorrow, Deuteronomy, and one of the most interesting and unusual verses in the whole Bible. Have a great afternoon.